not always the first place as Christians we go. We go to the Gospels, we go to the Psalms. And we sometimes, struggle. when we get to the Old Testament, we find it rather long-winded and seems to be an awful lot of detail in there. And we sometimes question, is it relevant you know, for the Christian life? And uh, I hope to try and demonstrate today how relevant it is in, to some extent. But uh, I would always encourage you to read the Old as, as, you will, as well as the New, obviously, uh, in your personal reading. As I mentioned a bit earlier, the theme I'm carrying on from two weeks ago is this theme of approaching God and how that radically changes and alters between the old covenant and the new. And uh, that's what the writer to the Hebrews there is uh, for drawing out or starting to draw out. The whole book of Hebrews does that in more detail. So two weeks ago, I spoke on um, the topic of holiness, and I drew out uh, from uh, 1 Peter, if you remember, 1 Peter 15 and 16, just as you who calls you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy, which is a quotation from Leviticus. And that initial message had kind of been out of my personal reflections and studies of the book of Exodus. You know, the nice thing about Hebrews, he summarises a lot of what's in Exodus Obviously in Exodus, you've got chapter after chapter that go through the detail of this, this stuff. And particularly, I've been looking at um, texts that focus on the building of a tabernacle, or as it's also called, the tent of meeting, that God commanded Moses to build in order that he might dwell, in one sense separate with his holiness, but he might dwell amongst his people. And alongside my reading of Exodus, I've been also looking at, therefore, obviously Hebrews, which is really the New Testament response to much which is in the book of Exodus. And I found, personally, reading those two books alongside each other very instructive. When it comes to what I'm calling this morning, Heaven's Dilemma. Heaven's Dilemma. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you reflect on... We've got a holy God, a God who is so separate and so different to us. God's holiness, in one sense, separates us from him. God's holiness is like the Father's wrath because of our sin. And yet, if we all have a God, we understand as a God of love. And it's like heaven's dilemma is, you know, to me, the love of God in Christ forever draws God to us. Right? And the holiness of God, in one sense, pushes us away. Not because he wants to push us away, but because our behaviour and actions, you know, as it were, checks us out of his presence. Heaven's dilemma. How can God reconcile his holiness and his love? Because God wishes to dwell amongst his people. That's what we understand in Christ, isn't it? And by the presence of the Spirit, the God who wants to be with us, you know, in all our ups and downs in life. And in a certain minute, I'm going to try and demonstrate this point. I've got a little slideshow we're going to click through. So a bit of visual rather than words. Because one of the problems with the tabernacle stuff is you're going through lots and lots of words, and sometimes they get a bit repetitive, and we all get a bit lost. So we're obviously uh, quite used to um, pictures these days and videos. I'm not showing you a video, but I'm showing you a collection of pictures. And I'm just going to describe the tabernacle a bit and see what we can learn from it. And then we're going to come back to what Hebrews is saying about it. Liz read these words, I'm just going to reread them. A tabernacle was set up, this is Hebrews 9 verse 2, in its first room was the lampstand and the table and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. 
Behind the second curtain was a room called Most Holy Place, which had a golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark contained a jar of manna, Aaron's staff, staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. And above the Ark was the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. And I always think looking at the Old Testament and reading things in the Old Testament, it's a bit like peeling an onion in some way, where there seem to be layers upon layers uh, to explore in the Old Testament tabernacle. And if we look at the tabernacle in a minute, what we see is, as it were, there's layers to it which get closer and closer to the Holy of Holies. But there's layer upon layer upon layer. At the end of the day, it's only the high priest, the holiest priest, as it were, who can actually enter that Holy of Holies and even then once, only once a year. Only the high priest was permitted on the most strict and rigorous terms as well. Thinking about us as people, as mortal creatures who seek to live in something of God's presence, as God seeks to look, live with us, it's a bit like playing with fire, like living with a dangerous material. For example, something that's highly radioactive might be another analogy we could use. Now, we can often be put off like when we're reading the Old Testament because some books seem to be crammed full of rules and procedures. And we go, well, what's that? What's relevance? But in one sense, such painstaking procedures are amazingly similar to the procedures used when handling dangerous radioactive materials, specialised clothing, the concern for purification, the precise handling of materials, in this sense, both the workers in today's nuclear industry and those Old Testament priests who dare to approach the Holy God share this in common. The need for meticulous preparation, proceeding with care and great caution. And the nuclear industry has learned often the hard way how to handle safely such dangerous, dangerous materials. And likewise, the Old Testament is God's instruction manual to ensure that the Jews could handle the awesome holiness of Yahweh without perishing. A detailed manual on how to survive a nuclear accident may seem like very dull reading when we're lying on a beach. But it is gripping reading were we to be standing on top of a nuclear reactor that was in danger of melting down. The Old Testament's detailed procedures can seem desperately dull and irrelevant if we lose sight of the bigger picture. The wonderful news that stands behind it, that the wonderful, powerful God, the creator of the universe, has entered the life of this small, insignificant group of people, the Israelites. And Israelites could not just fit this God neatly into their own life and their own lifestyles, no. Instead, they had to restructure. They had to rework their lives, their food habits, their relationships, their economics, in order to accommodate this holy presence. So let us not forget, to start with, that the holy, awesome God who dwelt among those Israelites 3,000 years ago is still the same God we know today through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. The God of a Christian today 
is no less holy than the God of Sinai 3,000 years ago. The God of whom Moses said, he said, the sight, it was so terrifying, I was trembling with fear. So that all said, there's a little bit of a scene setter, just trying to sort of uh, build on that. We're going to take a little tour of the Old Testament tabernacle now. And I would just want you to do so, just think of it as this onion, where we're going deeper and deeper, as it were, into the onion. The concentric rings. As we go through each stage, fewer and fewer people could pass. Till at the end of it, in the Holy of Holies, we have the high priest just once a year. So we're going to start there. It's a whistle-stop tour with some graphics, so you don't need to worry about so much about the words. Here is the outer gate. A curtain, skillfully and beautifully woven, apparently, in blue, purple, and scarlet. This is the only entrance to the tabernacle. And even here, we see the first level of exclusion. Because only those who are members of the, new, the first Old Covenant could enter. Only Jews can enter here. And there may be some of you here who do, does have, do have Jewish heritage. But most of us would be stopped, as it were, at the door. Left cold, left out in the cold before we've even started. And then we come into the courtyard. Entering the courtyard, we come to the place where the first step in meeting with God was undertaken. And this is the altar of sacrifice. In the understanding of the seemingly cruel act of sacrifice comes the gift of forgiveness and the position of standing in a right place before God. Exodus 29, verse 42. For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites and the place will be consecrated for my glory. God daily required sacrifices to be made, continually confirming the covenant which is between them. No sacrifice had an enduring benefit. None were once and for all. And then we come to the laver, the basin of water placed strategically between the altar and the tent of meeting. The laver was a vessel of physical and symbolic cleansing for the priests, because only priests could enter into the holy place. And it was absolutely essential that they were clean before beginning the process of meeting with their God. And then again, we come to the holy place. We see a further separation in the face of increasing holiness. As I said, only priests could ever enter into this place to tend to their tasks inside. The curtain serves to emphasize purity and consecration, which are prerequisites before proceeding into the first room of the tent of meeting. And in this place, there are three things. There's menorah, or candlesticks, now closed off from the outside world. The single source of light in here comes from seven lamps, all on top of a gold lampstand. 
The combined light of these oil lamps would have reflected off the walls since they were covered with gold. The glow of a lamp would have illumined the room, reminding the priest of God's light. But in him there is no darkness at all. Opposite the lamp, there's the table of showbread. On this table were kept 12 loaves of fresh bread, one for each of the tribes, as a continual reminder of humanity's need for God's provision. Since the desert was not an abundant source of food, God provided all the food the Israelites needed to sustain them. And the table of showbread represents, as were, an offering to God of their first fruits from his abundance that he has provided. And the last item in this space is the altar of incense. The altar represents the needs of the prayer of the people to be continuously directed upwards towards God. So now from the holy place we come to the holy of holies. Just beyond the altar of incense was the holy of holies. This dwelling place of God was so solemn, so set apart, that the veil could only be opened once a year. And it was then the high priest would enter and meet with God. Pushing back the veil reveals the articles above where the most holy meeting would occur. The first is the Ark of the Covenant. Stored inside the Ark were three important reminders of, to people of their relationship with God, each one reminding and teaching the Israelites a specific lesson. Firstly, as an enduring testimony on God's provision, there's a golden pot filled with one day, day's portion of manna, reminding them of their absolute dependence on God's provision and how God provides for the day, not necessarily for the ones beyond it. Not yet, anyway. Secondly, within the, the, the Ark of the Covenant is Aaron's rod. It reminds the Israelites when they were tempted to revolt and complain against their leaders, Moses and Aaron, that God had chosen them. The sign for this was Aaron's rod, which had miraculously budded, flad, and borne almonds all in one night. And lastly, and probably the best known, the two stone tablets engraved with the Ten Commandments. These tablets contain the primary rules that they were to live by, which would protect them and guide them so that they might not sin against God. First, a real whistle-stop store. Well, whistle-stop tour. That's better. Uh, the Old Testament tabernacle. This meeting place where God meets with his people. It's not a place that anybody can just walk into on a whim. It is approached with great care, with fear and trembling. Awareness of the awesome holiness of God, whose presence dwelt within and how irreconcilable that presence is with human sin. So, there's a lesson in the Old Testament there about the old tabernacle and obviously the, the holiness of God there. But let's now come forward to the new covenant we have in Christ. And as we come then to our reading from Hebrews... 
And the writer of the Hebrews is basically you know, reflecting on, on his Jewish past and his Jewish roots and effectively not dismissing it in any way. But he's saying now this is what the you know, arrival of Jesus Christ does. This is what we, you now have to understand. It hasn't wiped it away, but it has built upon that in Christ. Hebrews 8, verse 6, the ministry Jesus has received is a superior to theirs, this is talking about the priests, as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. It is found on better promises. In Jesus, a whole new revelation of God's saving work was revealed to the world. That Old Testament tabernacle with all its layers that filtered out all but one man, this holy of holiest persons, has been replaced by an empty cross, the cross of Christ. A symbol that is an enduring reminder for all of us to see that a new covenant has been founded on the life, death and resurrection of God's beloved Son, Jesus, our Redeemer. Jesus opened up a way for all to come to this holy God. Jesus reconciled the love of God with the holiness of God. And we are invited to come, not through religious formula or jumping through all sorts of religious hoops, but simply in repentance and faith. No longer is it that Jews only no longer is it anything about priests only. But now for any of us in repentance and faith, it is in Christ only. Hebrews 7 and verse 22, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. And therefore he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. The point of what we're saying, the writer says, is this. We have such a high priest who has sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in that heavenly tabernacle, the true tabernacle, not one sent up, set up by man, but by God. Old tabernacle, new tabernacle. For either one, we are still looking at the same holy God. And I personally find by reading those Old Testament scriptures that helps me remember that fact. With the coming of the new covenant, God has not become any less holy. He remains the same, and that's a reality we should never take lightly. We're quick to be embraced and feel the embrace of God's love, 
God's love and holiness are together for us in Christ. God in Christ has offered himself up in that sacrificial act of love, the magnitude of which we can barely comprehend or grasp. He offered himself up, removing the offence of our ungodliness, providing for us someone who stands in our stead and is able to fully forgive our sins. One who doesn't just visit the Holy of Holies once a year, but one who has sat down at the right hand of God in God's presence and intercedes for us there. The Old Testament tabernacle remains a powerful and relevant reminder of God's unchanging, holy nature. But the new tabernacle, the new meeting place we are offered in Christ, demonstrates just how far God has been willing to come in order to dwell with his people. A tremendous personal cost he was willing to bear for our sakes in order to permanently deal with that eternal separation that our sin presents us with as we come to a holy God. As I said, this holy new covenant is not received through any religious ceremony, but simply through faith and repentance in God's word. A word that says Jesus has come, has become our tabernacle. Jesus has become our meeting place. Jesus, no layers, just Jesus. Available not just once a year, available not only just when we come with a sacrifice or a good deed, but available anywhere, available day or night, any moment of the day. So as we reflect this morning upon the Old Testament tabernacle, may we also become ever more aware and hopefully ever more grateful as we see just how far God has been willing to come for each one of us in Christ. Hebrews 10 and verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who calls us is faithful. Amen. Let us pray.